The opinions expressed on the following sponsored program are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers, and not necessarily those of this station, its staff, management, or sponsors. It's Down to Business with Jack Miller. Forget what they teach you in school. This is real life. Not Wall Street, but Main Street. He and his guests will answer your questions and provide you with valuable information. Stay tuned and join in the conversation. Follow them on Facebook at Jack Miller Down to Business or on Twitter at HJackMiller1. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is Jack Miller here with my main man. Todd, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Jack? I'm doing good. I'm really excited to have our next... I, I, I know I say this about a lot of guests, but I really mean it about this one. I actually mean it about all of them because I enjoy talking about things that interest me. And our next guest is, I, I'm going to read you his resume in a few minutes because it's, it's out of sight. This guy has so many degrees and so many accomplishments, but he's an expert on monetary policy. He's currently a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, but why I'm interested in talking to him is because, I don't know if, I think you know, Todd, but some of the people who know me, some of them don't know, I made the genius move, and when I gen say genius, I really mean the stupidest move in the world by uh, leading an investor group and purchasing a small $24 million bank right before the economic crash of about 10, 12 years ago. And it was just the biggest nightmare of my life, and I still deal with it, and I think I have PSTT, PSTT or whatever it's called over it. Uh, and uh, the professor is really an expert in monetary policy, so I'm interested in hearing his perspective of the economic crisis. Uh, but let me introduce this guy. Um, Wait, you're saying we're having an actual business interview on a business uh, show? Yes. He's a professor. Oh, I love it. He's a doctor. So let me give you a little background. His name's uh, Professor Professor Dr. George Sel Selgan. I don't know. What do you call him? Professor or doctor? Both. Both. Okay. I'll call him professor. Uh, he uh, is senior director of financial alternatives at the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian uh, think tank. I think that's a good way to describe them, but we'll ask him. He also uh, was a retired a professor at the University of Georgia. He taught at George Mason University, University of Hong Kong, West Virginia, holds a BA in economics and zoology, wow. which I think is kind of interesting, and has a PhD from um, NYU in economics. So, Professor, with that, are you with us? Yes, I am. I Hi, appreciate Jack. it. And I have to tell you, I'm a little intimidated. I usually don't speak to people who have as much brain power as you. Wow. So I, I may have to have you dummy it down a little bit for me. I'm usually talking to, like, the Wendy's clerks. Not I don't know if I should be insulted <laughs> yeah. by that comment, Jack. Todd, I talked to you all the time. <laughs> well, professor, I, I told you I'm really excited to have you because um, you're an expert on a lot of stuff that I want to talk about. Uh, so first of all, did I do your introduction justice? Did I make any mistakes there? Not really. It, it's actually Selgin, but everybody Selgin. gets it wrong. I so apologize. I'm, I'm used to it. I, I often let it slide, slide but since you asked, uh, and I'm also, I should mention, the director of Cato's uh, Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Do I notice a, a little accent there? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, I do talk funny, I, but I don't think I would call it an accent. It's actually the way my father talked. I learned that when I started picking up his phone after he passed away and people thought I was him. I said, ah, so that's what I sound like. Gotcha, gotcha. It is interesting. And, and by the way, I'm also an NYU alum, so oh, it's really? good to have you on. Yeah, I, I, MBA, I, I, MBA. Not, not quite a PhD, but 
an All MBA right. nonetheless. So uh, you've written numerous books um, on the monetary crisis and all kinds of things around economics. You've written some fantastic articles. One of them I, I love was called Floored, How the Fled, Fed Misguide, how, how the Misguided Fed Experiment Deepened and Prolonged the Great Recession. Uh, Fed Must Stop Rewarding Banks for Not Lending. So maybe let's start uh, by you giving us your view of the economic, I don't know what to call it. I call it the economic crisis. Everyone has a different name. For what caused it and what was the lead up to it and how you think the government's reaction was? Was it the proper, was it not proper? And of course now we have the hindsight of you know, 10, 12 years later, so we, we all can you know, be Monday morning quarterbacks. All right. Well, uh, first of all, Jack, uh, there, there are so many factors that contributed to this crisis. And uh, I, don't, I, I want to uh, immediately start by saying that you can't pin it on any one of them. It, uh, it takes quite a, few, uh, <laughs> quite a few things to make a crisis so extensive and so severe. Uh, part of it was uh, the uh, deterioration of lending standards. Uh, that was a, a big part of what happened, uh, combined with the securitization of mortgages. So you had poor mortgages being made and packaged up into securities with bits and pieces of different mortgages and different securities. And then those securities would be sold. And uh, eventually people would end up owning mortgages that they uh, knew nothing about. Uh, and uh, all of this, to really simplify, all of this seemed to work just swell as long as housing prices were rising. As soon as they started to fall, uh, suddenly default rates started to rise. And it wasn't just uh, the defaults on so-called subprime mortgages. It was defaults all around started to go up. So we had created this gigantic superstructure of mortgage-backed securities uh, on the basis of, uh, as it were, an expectation that housing prices could never fall. <laughs> and of course, they did fall, and the whole thing started to crumble. Now, there were a lot of factors that went into it. Some of them were private market uh, developments, but the government deserves uh, considerable blame uh, because it uh, encouraged some of the very worst lending that went on during the boom, and therefore uh, was responsible for uh, a considerable chunk of the defaults that followed when house, housing prices fell. And the, the agencies that and laws that were involved included everything from the Community uh, Reinvestment uh, uh, Act to uh, the uh, role of the uh, GSEs, Fannie and Freddie, which uh, ultimately uh, purchased uh, uh, and provided, therefore, a market for a lot of the bad loans that uh, were uh, being made, which, of course, ended with those GSEs going broke and having to be uh, nationalized. How did you think the government handled um, the, the whole economic meltdown from TARP to the taking over of Fannie and Freddie to the government picking winners and losers? Um, I mean, it just, I could just go on and on with the list. Yes, you could. <laughs> it was a, a horribly mess, uh, messy uh, rescue and bailout operation, and I think, generally speaking, I would give it pretty poor marks. 
I'm, of course, most familiar with uh, the actions that the Federal Reserve took because that's my particular, particular interest. Uh, but what you had was a massive array of government interventions that were very ad hoc. Uh, really, nobody knew what <laughs> what would happen next. And the result of this, first of all, was a great deal of uncertainty about uh, the future and what the business environment uh, would be like. Uh, the uh, On the part of the Fed, I can say that uh, the Fed blundered, first of all, by having been a factor in the boom. The, the Fed responded to the previous downturn, the so-called dot-com crash, by keeping interest by keeping interest rates low uh, and kept them low for very long and promised to do so, which is uh, uh, even worse in some ways, as a way to uh, assist uh, a soft landing or encourage recovery. That went on very, very long with interest rates in real terms. Uh, uh, the Fed's policy rate, particularly at a negative level. And that, of course, helped fuel the real estate bubble that we were talking about, making the crash that much worse. But after the crash began, the Fed focused uh, almost exclusively on bailing out particular institutions, rescuing failing banks, uh, rather than providing liquidity to the market as a whole. There's a there's an old tried and true doctrine about emergency lending in a crisis that says that its purpose is to keep the solvent part of the economy from suffering from a lack of liquidity. It's not to bail out the, the firms that deserve to fail because they've made bad investments. Uh, the Fed really did just the opposite, particularly uh, in the lead up to 2008 by uh, channeling funds to firms and banks, especially, but ultimately non-banks of doubtful solvency, and at the same time, keeping a lid on money creation in general, which meant that it was starving the more responsible uh, actors in the economy to bail out some that had been less responsible. And that goes against all the basic principles of last resort lending. So do you think the Fed should not have intervened with TARP and some of these bailouts and just sort of uh, sat on the sidelines a little bit? I would say not that it should not have intervened altogether because, you know, in a, in a downturn like that, you do get a tremendous scramble for liquidity. And it's in precisely those circumstances where the Fed does have an absolute obligation to supply that liquidity because only it can do so. So uh, it's it's unfortunate but <laughs> true that they are the only source of uh, ultimate source of money in the economy. So when there more of it is needed, the Fed has a duty to supply it. But it should supply it generally. It should supply it in a way that gets it to the responsible sound businesses in the economy and not just to firms that the Fed itself determines it should rescue. Uh, so I would have had the Fed create liquidity, uh, but I would have had it supply it through open market operations to the general marketplace and also perhaps through one of the facilities the Fed created, the so-called term uh, auction facility. And the reason why I think that program was desirable was 
because it was uh, open to a wide set of financial institutions that had to bid competitively for funds. And as such, it was a, a better alternative because, as it were, it was more uh, competitive and, as you might say, democratic to uh, making piecemeal offers of support to particular institutions through the many other programs and, and uh, 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 many other programs and specific deals that the Fed engaged in. So, is, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, it's Todd. Go, go on, Todd. Uh, is yes, the, Todd. Has the economy rebounded to the extent that it would seem to the average person looking at metrics like you know, the real estate market, the, the stock market, um, and, and all of the, those type of metrics? Or is it more um, like a house of cards? Like, is the strength of the overall economy, in your opinion, really fully rebounded the way that it seems? Well, I, I think that it, it has rebounded in the sense that it's, I think it's time to stop talking about uh, the recovery as if we're still in it. I think, I think in, in, in plenty of senses, we have recovery. Uh, we have recovered from, from that crisis, which by the way is no great feat since the, uh, the, the depth of the crisis was now 10 years ago, why you would think we would have recovered by right. now. But in fact, uh, uh, the only reasonable way to gauge uh, whether recovery has taken place is to go by the general statistics we usually rely on, on uh, uh, G -G GDP, uh, on inflation, unemployment. Certainly, the growth rate of GDP is now looking reasonably robust, uh, uh, if not stellar. Uh, we, we, uh, we have a booming uh, stock market. We have a record low unemployment rate, though it must be said that that uh, behind that, uh, in part, is uh, is also a, a still very low labor participation rate. Not everything, of course, is returned to the status quo before the crisis. But then again, of course, things change so for all kinds of reasons. We don't go back to where we were. And some of the changes are portentous. Uh, labor, the economic productivity is not what it used to be. I mentioned labor force participation. Um, but I, if I were worried about anything now, it would be whether we're uh, getting ready for the next crisis rather than whether we have managed to recover from the last one. Got it. And, what, and where do you see potential sort of weak links in our economy that could trigger another crisis? My answer, unfortunately, to that has to be rather vague because um, uh, I don't see a general, I, uh, unlike some commentators, I don't think we're in a situation where we've got a unsustainable boom going on in any widespread sense. If you look at the numbers for total spending, uh, and also for inflation, though that's not as reliable an indicator, uh, we don't see excessive uh, increases in either set of numbers. Usually, if, uh, if uh, Fed policy is causing uh, too much uh, 
uh, irrational exuberance. It'll show up not just in the behavior of particular markets, but also in total spending uh, figures. Uh, but but um, that doesn't mean that we can't have some uh, dangers uh, in particular markets or particular sets of among particular sets of financial institutions. And I think we have to be very, very alert to those, partly because, unfortunately, the fundamental, many of the fundamental problems that contributed to the last crisis simply haven't been solved and may even have been worsened since, despite all the new regulations and legislation. One of which is that we still have a big moral hazard problem in our financial industry. That's a problem where financial institutions take undue risks because of explicit or implicit guarantees. We haven't really solved that problem. We've chipped away at it. Dodd-Frank chips away at it to some extent, but uh, it's still there. And that uh, means that at some point there's a great risk that some uh, will have more financial insolvencies and whatever panic or crisis that results in. Professor, do you think the the, the repercussions the government, regula specifically regulatory, you talked about Dodd-Frank, uh, I'm talking about the FDIC, has helped the economy or made it safer? Because I have to tell you, I, I don't think it has. I think the... Um, and I was destroyed by the FDIC, so I'm no fan of it. So keep that in mind. But I you think made a, you made a fundamental mistake. You know the old saying, never steal anything sm uh, small. That's exactly right. Uh, you should never buy any think, bank that's small. You've got to buy a big bank. Then they would have been shoving money at you instead of taking it away. That's exactly right, because it was very clear from the moment we bought the bank, they were doing everything possible to uh, put us out of business. And, look, and it wasn't just me. They shut down, you know, thousands of them. Looking in retrospect, I, I say I must have been the biggest idiot in the world. I, when the economy crashed or started to crash, I should have just said, here, take it. Because I suffered and we kept yeah. dumping more money in and trying to please the government. And it was an impossible situation. It's but interesting, it Jack, because that would have, had, that would have been doing exactly what large numbers of mortgage holders did, right? They turned in the keys and said, take it, it's yours. And, uh, and they too were, were ultimately, one has to say, they were doing the rational thing. You know, uh, it, it seems to me that one of the reactions by, I'll call it the government, but really the regulators, is to crack down on the, the loans on the books. So today you have what's called TDRs, uh, trouble debt relief loans and classified assets. And if a borrower, uh, is and this is a I think fits under the moral hazard category because prior to the crash, if a loan was paying on time, the lender almost never put the loan in default. But today you have scores and scores of loans that are paying perfectly, and banks put them in default and foreclose on them, and that is a directive directly from the U.S. government. Yes, I know. Um, well. Uh, getting back to your question, Jack, because it's all pertinent, uh, uh, all of what you've said is pertinent to answering it. Uh, what, uh, <clears throat> what the crisis has done is to create a, a, a vast crop of regulations that 
uh, are more calculate are better calculated to crush ordinary bank lending than to prevent another crisis in the future, or at best, uh, to the extent that they are serving to prevent another crisis in the future, they're doing it in an awfully costly way by snuffing out uh, uh, ordinary bank lending. And, uh, and that ultimately is a, is a drag on economic uh, productivity and growth. Uh, regulators are human, and uh, that's uh, no compliment in, in this context, because what it means is uh, that uh, they are, uh, like other human beings, inclined to behave pro-cyclically. In a boom, they're inclined to turn a, a blind eye to problems. But when the bust comes, suddenly they're cracking down left on and right, often on uh, matters that had nothing to do with what went wrong. And they also, because they're bureaucrats, like to cover their asses, if such a word is allowed on your program. Yes, sure. It's uh, encouraged. Yes, yes. They it's like definitely encouraged. Cover, they can cover their asses by insisting on hard and fast formulas being employed uh, to determine what loans a bank should make or shouldn't make, and um, what these formulas eventually, uh, inevitably end up doing is to take a banker's judgment out of the, out of the picture. Um, now, if, all, if, if that resulted in safer, better lending, okay, it might be worth it. In fact, it does no such thing precisely because when you have all bankers following the same formulas as regulators are inclined to try to make them do, if the formulas themselves are faulty, then you're really in trouble because you end up with uh, clusters of uh, bad loans because everyone's <laughs> doing the same thing. You have no diversity. Indeed, a lot of the bad lending that went on during the last crisis was formula driven, was mathematically driven. And it was mathematics, not independent bankers using their judgment, that was uh, driving the underestimation of the risk of defaults uh, in the event of a decline in housing prices. The better banks, the ones that got through the crash unscathed or relatively unscathed, unscathed were precisely the ones where bankers remembered the previous real estate crashes and did the right thing by uh, not underestimating the risk of a major downturn in real estate. And that's how they avoided uh, a lot of the junk loans that other people got caught with. So uh, I think that ultimately all these regulations are going to be bad in both respects. They're going to prevent good loans from being made, and they're not going to prevent bad loans from being made. They're going to make certain kinds of bad loans more common than ever. Right. And I want to add another thing. They're hurting the, uh, the small businessman and the consumer because Absolutely. since the government has cracked down on certain type of lending, you've seen, for example, payday lending. You've seen merchant cash advance lending. In fact, most of the bankruptcies filed by small business today have a segment where they've used merchant cash advance loans, and they're like, you know, 70 percent, 80 percent APR. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, 
I think uh, that the regulators and the politicians need to come to grips with a very uh, important and uh, um, and uh, and rather disturbing fact, which is that uh, on the one hand, they're all about uh, improving access to credit by people of modest means. On the other hand, it's their prudential regulations more than anything right now that are making the, it difficult for ordinary lenders to provide such credit. Uh, so, you know, it's a case of uh, we've met the enemy and, and, and he is us. I understand. Uh, but I don't think the regulators and the politicians are quite grasping this. Uh, I, I, but it's staring them in the face. I think they're clueless. And no offense to them. I know they're uh, hardworking. They mean well. But I really think they're clueless to the real world. Right. Well, they're clueless to the real world, perhaps. But everything they're doing, we have to realize, everything they're doing is consistent with their own uh, rational self-interest. They're doing what won't get them in trouble. It could get us in trouble. It can get other people in trouble. But... Uh, but it won't get them in trouble. Again, I don't want to go off the walls on the regulator. They're interested in protecting <laughs> yeah, their jobs. I don't jobs. want to get you and, upset here. No, but they're, they're interested afraid. in protecting their jobs and their asses. But let me... Yeah, it's like all of this. Like all, that's true. What do, you, do you believe in too big to fail? What do you think of that whole concept now? Well, I certainly believe that there is such a thing as too big to fail. And I think it's a, it's a gigantic problem, uh, if, if you pardon the expression. Uh, the, 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 there's no question, there's no question that, that we have uh, uh, a regulatory environment in which regulators uh, basically uh, are not prepared to let uh, large financial institutions uh, fail uh, and more particularly are not prepared to allow their uninsured creditors to suffer losses. So when we talk about too big to fail, what we're really talking about is how when, um, when, when a, a firm uh, is teetering on the brink, something by hook or by crook is gonna be done to protect its creditors. Maybe not the shareholders. The shareholders often do take a big hit when these institutions, these too big to fail institutions fail. But the creditors are the ones who are ultimately uh, tend to be spared, the ones who shouldn't be because at least they're not explicitly insured. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is it's the creditors who determine where, uh, which firms get the public savings, right? The, the firms that get to play with savings that is brought to them by the creditors. If creditors know that they're protected even if they deal with a banking or other financial firm that is taking exorbitant risks, you will end up with a lot of risk taking and a lot of failures eventually. So um, too big to fail is a real menace because it, 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 invites, it invites excessive risk taking and ultimate failures and perhaps outright crises related to those failures. So if too big to fail is bad, which I agree, 
wouldn't the government logically thinking want to encourage more smaller independent organizations to blossom and bloom and help spur the economy? Well, it might uh, to some extent, and you're quite right, it's certainly much of what it's been doing with all the heavy-handed regulations is having just the opposite effect, and despite some exemptions to which, for which uh, smaller community banks may qualify. But, uh, but we still have to keep in mind that um, uh, in the end, as long as too big to fail is in place, it's very hard for smaller institutions to compete with the larger institutions because the creditors aren't <laughs> being implicitly subsidized, having their risks assumed by taxpayers ultimately if they put their money in smaller institutions. Right. Uh, so there's no, you know, if you try to think of what government could do to make up for that by way of other regulations, I'm afraid we're talking about still more bureaucracy, still more intervention that just compounds problems. It's really, uh, there's no, uh, there's really no substitute for dealing with the problem of too big to fail directly uh, in one of two ways or both. One way is to uh, be explicit about which institutions are too big to fail and insist as, as is done to some extent in Dodd-Frank, and this is one of the few good things in Dodd-Frank, insist that they prepare so-called living wills, which are plans for bankruptcy that in theory at least uh, would allow them to be closed and allow their creditors to get in line in the usual way without adverse repercussions for the rest of the economy. So that's one approach and it's worth pursuing. It's absolutely worth pursuing. But the other approach that I think is just as important is to clip the wings of those agencies, including the Fed, but also the Treasury, uh, but, uh, but especially the Fed that are capable of bailing out these large institutions. If you, if you can cut that, uh, if you can cut that uh, uh, source of support, limited, uh, absolutely, without question, then of course the creditors have no reason to expect the bailouts and then they start behaving differently and everything will be better. But it, it, is it possible to clip their wings? And I only talk about the Fannie Freddie takeover. From what I've read, the government didn't even know if they had the legal authority to take over Fannie and Freddie. Um, and much has talked about it since then. And look, they were considered one of the safest stocks and preferred equities uh, out there. Sure. And the yeah. government just came in and just wiped out all the pref equity That's right. yeah. in, in a day. Yeah. And they may not have legally had the authority to, but the government, ultimately, if they want to, in the right political setting, can do whatever they want. The, the answer to that is that it's very hard to clip the wings of the government, of Congress, very hard. However, um, when it comes to too big to fail, we should remember that, um, uh, that uh, in, in my, many cases, the, the, uh, the, the government can't act so quickly to bail out a, a bank uh, uh, as the Fed can. That's because Congress has to do something. They have to act. They have to get together and make a decision. And it's a public decision. Whereas the Federal Reserve can do something uh, at, at the drop of a, a hat 
without any public uh, input or debate. So the Fed is really the most dangerous and effective prop for too big to fail to rest on. Uh, so limiting its power to uh, support businesses that it deems too big to fail would go a long way. It wouldn't go the whole way. There's always the possibility that Congress will step in and do the bailing out itself. But that would be a step in the right direction. And it would be enough of a step, I think, to make creditors at large financial institutions think twice before assuming that they're completely off the hook. Got now, it. What's your feeling about the loosening and even repealing of Glass-Steagall and the fact that these you know, conventional banks and investment banks sort of got married all during the 1990s and early 2000s. And what's your feeling about how that led to the crisis? And also, if you think that never happened, would a crisis, at least to the proportion we had, ever have happened? Well, first of all, um, I don't think that the partial rollback of Glass-Steagall, and it was only a partial rollback, had anything to do with the crisis. I think this is a uh, a widespread uh, uh, myth and a rather unfortunate one because it detracts uh, our attention. Uh, uh, it distracts us from from the the true causes of the crisis. In point of fact, had there been no rollback of Glass-Steagall, pretty much everything that bad that happened could still have happened. Remember that the biggest failures were on the part of uh, investment banks that had grown and become what they were as a result of the laws in place before that repeal, that partial repeal. And there wasn't anything that they did in, in, with subprime securities that they weren't allowed to do before that uh, change in the law. The only thing that changed in the law allowed, uh, the, allowed that it wasn't of any importance was it allowed the big investment banks to have not to, to, to have regular commercial bank affiliates and vice versa. Uh, but uh, in none of the cases of the major failures was the failure of a major investment bank due to problems at its commercial bank affiliate. Um, the only bank where there's there was some of that going on, uh, where there was some uh, connection between problems in the commercial banking operation and the uh, investment banking operation, or were there were some, let's say, synergies that could have led to bleed over, uh, was uh, Citibank. Citibank's in a notorious case here. And interestingly, they got permission to evade or uh, uh, to skip over the Glass-Steagall restrictions before right. they were re uh, 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 relaxed. Uh, they were they were let in anyway. So the law, even if you believe that the relaxation of Glass-Steagall for Citibank was a problem there, uh, that had nothing to do with the law that was passed afterwards, which itself didn't make things any worse. I don't think, though, generally speaking, I don't think that Glass-Steagall restrictions uh, would have made any serious difference. What they would have done and this is important, they would have interfered with many of the some more important rescue operations. Because remember how the rescues often consisted 
of merging a failing mm -hmm. bank with an investment bank or vice versa. That would have been difficult, if not impossible, had the law not been changed when it was changed. Got it. Thank Got you. it. Uh, I have to ask you, before, I, no time is running along and there's so much I could talk to you about, but I wanted to get your opinion on the values of commercial real estate today, at the high values and the low cap rates. Is it sustainable? And uh, would you be a commercial real estate investor today? Well, I'm not a commercial real estate investor. I'll let that suffice for an answer. <laughs> gotcha. So should... Um, people be concerned about the values of commercial real estate today? I don't want to really speculate on that. To be truthful, I'm one of those economists who isn't all that smart about that sort of thing. I have my little apartment here in D.C. D.C. is hedged because government grows forever. So I feel <laughs> like I've got a pretty safe real estate bet. Gotcha. Everybody else is on their own. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Uh, do you think one, well, two, Two questions. One uh, specifically, uh, do you think what happened, you know, 10, 12 years ago was truly like a once every 50 or 70 year event, sort of like the Depression? Or is it should be something on uh, business people's and investors' minds as something that could happen in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Well, that depends, of course. Uh, what happened 10 years ago was very unique. We're not going to have another crisis just like it, of course. Every, every, uh, every financial crisis is different from every other financial crisis and often in very, very uh, uh, many ways and fundamental ways. So um, I think we, it's safe to say the next crisis is going to be different. I think it's also safe to say that it's, it's going to happen because, as I mentioned before, some of the fundamental problems that uh, contributed to the last crisis, including too big to fail, are, are still with us. And, uh, uh, but it's anyone's guess which particular financial institutions, non-financial institutions are going to be at, the, at ground zero of the, of the next calamity and, and just what other, uh, uh, way, what, what other uh, characteristics that, that calamity will have. Um, I don't see any particular thing pending. I do think, though, that uh, as, as you mentioned, we have, there is a lot of leverage out there. There are some financial institutions that seem particularly leveraged and, uh, and perhaps uh, in danger of coming uh, 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 to uh, uh, facing a crisis. Um, certainly some of the government sponsored enterprises are, are uh, uh, suspect. And now I think we've learned that we, we really ought to keep an eye on them, partly because of too big to fail. Um, and uh, so there are lots of possibilities. I wish it were easy to predict where the next crisis came from. But after all, I was one of the legions of economists who did not see the last one coming. So why should you trust me? <laughs> to know where the next one will have happen. You mentioned leverage. Should a, an individual investor um, feel safer with lower leverage or should say, hey, um, you know, it, it doesn't matter? Well, that's a matter of how much, how, uh, how much risk you're willing to take on. 
uh, uh, individual investors, of course, are not too big to fail. So they they have to make these yeah. judgments. Gotcha. And and it's it's not as if taking risk is itself bad. I I wouldn't want to imply that. And I don't think leverage is bad, unless the basis of it is some implicit or explicit government guarantee. Because then, of course, the risk is ultimately born, going to be born, being born in part by taxpayers, and that that's wrong, and that that's what leads to trouble. Individuals uh, gambling on on uh, 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 some risky ventures and uh, getting involved with highly leveraged operations. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that as long as uh, they're prepared. Uh, to and allowed to uh, take the fall if things go sour. Well, Professor, I really appreciate your time. Um, I, you're obviously very intelligent. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to have you. I can't wait to listen to it. Uh, I've ordered a couple of your books. I would a a ask everyone to check you out on Amazon. Um, your books look fascinating. Uh, if everyone goes to cato.org, they can read a bunch of your papers and writings. We'll have up check right under your, the professor. You're going to see his social media tags. And uh, I can't thank you enough for your insight and um, your, yeah. your being with us today. Do you have anything you would like to plug? Uh, well, I'll mention that my newest book out is called uh, is a new edition of a, a book I wrote some years ago, and it's called Less Than Zero, not to be confused with the novel of that name. Loved it. And it's it's about uh, why uh, deflation is sometimes actually uh, a good thing, among other topics. And uh, to find a new edition of that on Amazon as well. Look for the one with the, the green and uh, and uh, cream colored cover. That's that's the one to get. Um, and the book you mentioned before called Floored, that will be out in about two, three more weeks. Okay. So, we'll, we'll, plug, we'll plug it then. Professor, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time today yeah, thank and you, your depth Doc. of knowledge. Thanks to both of you, Jack and Todd. I uh, enjoyed it very much. And you I want to thank the good folks at Cato because the truth is without them, they are, wouldn't, Professor wouldn't be talking to us. So you my, bet. You, if you relied on me to do a Skype interview, I'd be <laughs> on my computer still trying to figure it all out. Uh, uh, thank you, Professor. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Okay. Todd, I'll tell bye -bye. you, bye. we're going to have more of Cato on because they do so much good work uh, in terms of criminal justice, and they really do a ton of work to help people. So, no, uh, it was great. It uh, was very great. educational, uh, you know, taking a little walk down memory lane, not, not in a good way, but educational way. And I can't believe it's been more than a decade already, but... Uh, I have news for you. People are still feeling it today. I talk to customers every day who are still suffering the consequences of the recession 10, 12 years ago because the banks are have them on their TDR list, the classified list. They can't get financing. Uh, we did a debtor in possession loan for a company in the Philadelphia area that finally collapsed uh, from the uh, recession 12 years ago. So it's still going on today. Right. It, 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 I think it's going to go on for another 10 years. Sure. Well, with that, everyone, I know it wasn't a laughing show, and <laughs> but I hope you had, I hope you learned something or had a good time. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you another time online. Don't forget to like us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and anywhere else. We'll take all the likes we can get. Have Thank you, week. and have a good day. The opinions expressed on the preceding sponsored program were strictly those of its hosts, guests, and callers, and not necessarily those of the station, its staff, management, or sponsors. When